Hello and welcome to Voices of Nexus, where experts discuss and debate issues surrounding mental health and trauma. Here in the U.S., it is a sad but common observation that our mental health system is broken. People, especially marginalized communities, who need help often can't or don't know how to access it, and resources remain underutilized due to stigma or lack of awareness. Many experience crisis before any intervention. Given the added pressures we face today, these faults are doubly exposed. But there are bright spots. There are visionaries working tirelessly to create a better tomorrow and move us from hopeless to hopeful. Here on Voices of Nexus, we will learn about the steps being made to support the mental health of women, youth, BIPOC, and LGBTQIA communities, and those in the justice system, all of which are underserved and disproportionately impacted by trauma. This podcast is part of the larger Nexus initiative sponsored by Otsuka America Pharmaceutical, Inc. Please check us out at www.nexusmentalhealth.com. That's www.nexusmentalhealth.com. Or look us up on Facebook. Hi, I'm Gabe Howard, an award-winning podcast host, author, and mental health speaker. And I'm excited to be hosting Season 3 of Voices of Nexus. In this four-part series, we will explore the climate of trauma, highlighting individual experiences in living with or working towards addressing trauma and mental health. Through their own personal stories and professional experiences, each episode explores some of the most pressing topics within this larger conversation today. I hope these discussions spark new ideas about how we can better support ourselves and each other in addressing trauma. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Voices of Nexus podcast. We are very excited to have two wonderful guests with us today. Now, I'm not going to introduce them because, well, they're very capable of introducing themselves along that vibe. Juliet, please tell the folks who you are and why you're here. I am Juliet Doris Williams. I'm the executive director of the Peer Center in Columbus, Ohio, which is a drop-in wellness and support center for people living with mental illness, addiction, and trauma. I'm a social worker. I'm a person living in recovery from depression, anxiety, trauma, and this is the work that I do, and I do this work for others like me, and I'm always feeling pretty grateful to have the opportunity to serve in this way. Juliet, thank you so much for being here, and Dr. Wang, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Dr. Jenny Wang. I'm a clinical psychologist based in Houston, Texas. I'm a corporate speaker, author, and founder of the Asians for Mental Health community, where we really focus on trying to understand the unique nuances of Asian American identity and mental health. And my focus really is on kind of intergenerational trauma, mental health issues related to immigrant families, as well as the Asian diaspora communities. Well, again, thank you both so much for being here and for being open about your own experiences and sharing your knowledge with all of us. Let's go ahead and jump right in. This question is for both of you, so either one of you can take it, but you both are going to get a chance to answer. How have your own cultural backgrounds and personal experiences allowed you to connect with those you serve in a unique capacity? So hi, Juliet. I'll go first, I guess, on that one. With respect to my cultural background, I'm an African-American woman. I use the term African-American or Black interchangeably, just depends on who I'm talking to. And one of the trauma experiences that I can check off in terms of the list, and there's quite an extensive list of trauma 
experiences is historical and generational trauma that Black folks, American Black folks, have dealt with, well, since the 1600s. These things, we, we um, as a country, and I, so I'm going to start really big, Gabe, here. As a country, we've just never dealt with these things. Because we don't deal with them, they continue to impact systems and people and the people who work in those systems. And I'm a woman of a certain age. And so I've been around in these systems for quite some time. And it's always the same experience that you're having to interpret and you're having to negotiate your way with people so that they're not uncomfortable with you on a personal perspective and from a professional perspective, there's always a, I don't want to see, say a a certain persona that you need to put on, but you do need to be conscious of the fact that you are categorized as other in these systems and in these environments. And so it hasn't gone away in all my years and in all my, all the different places that I have found myself in terms of my career as a social worker. It's quite a phenomenon. So, Thank you, Juliet. And Dr. Wang, the same question. I really appreciated Juliet sharing kind of how it is a structure, right? It is a system. And I think being Asian American and kind of almost being dropped into that historical context where for me, race was always framed as the Black or African-American community or the white community. So being Asian American felt like I don't know where I stand in this kind of binary narrative within race of the United States. And so I think my personal experiences has always been needing to code switch whenever I needed to exist in spaces where I was not part of the dominant culture. But I think, right, we're talking about this idea of proximity to whiteness, that that carries a privilege but it also has been extremely damaging to the Asian American community as well. And I think that's something that I had to learn on my own because my parents were first-generation immigrants. They didn't talk to us about race. They didn't even understand racial relations when they came to the United States. So that cultural background was largely untouched within my family structure. These ideas of systemic racism or injustice in this country were largely left outside of my awareness. And I think when that happens, when you're mistreated due to your cultural background or racial identity, we internalize that. I always thought that I was being mistreated because of who I was versus being able to name the structures in which people, like Juliet said, viewed me as other. And I think that has been a crucial part in helping our clients understand and start to externalize some of that hate that is insidious and has been built into the fabric of this country. This question is also for both of you, and it's a bit of a rip the band-aid off moment. I have heard from many people in marginalized communities that they would rather work with providers that are members of their own communities. And we've seen this in in BIPOC communities, LGBTQ plus communities, like, look, I, I want a therapist who looks like me, sounds like me, relates to me, and has shared my experiences. As a cisgendered white person, I was like, well, but 
it isn't like any trained therapist the same. And then I got real hard pushback, like, no, no, they're not. I would like to give that question to the two of you, because again, my jerk reaction is like, well, a medical professional is a medical professional is a medical professional. And I really received a lot of communication that you might think so, but Gabe, you would be wrong. And I would like both of you to have the opportunity to address that. Sure. I'm um, cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a complex topic, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think that was the historical framework was this idea that a trained medical professional adheres to certain moral or ethical kind of guidelines that should inform their work. However, humans are inherently biased. And I think that biasy, the problem with that biasy is that it's often outside of our awareness. So, you know, we think about different communities where there's a disproportionate outcome or negative outcome. You know, when we think about African-American mothers and their high rates of mortality after childbirth, this is not something that is happening by accident. And there's something going on in that process. And so, I've also heard the opposite, interestingly, in the Asian-American community, that some people say... I actually don't want to find a therapist who's Asian American because I'm worried that they will hold certain ideas or frameworks or biases about me that I'm actually trying to break free from or release from. So I think it's not to say there always has to be an ethnic, cultural, or racial match. I'm actually more concerned about whether or not this person is humble enough to admit the biasy, to admit that they may not understand your full lived experience, to be corrected without letting ego get in the way, and that they are open and curious about that person's experience. I think if that person is able to embody that type of posture, then maybe it doesn't matter whether or not there's that ethnic match. But I think we're talking about psychological safety and psychological safety is not inherent and neither is it necessarily in our training and especially with communities that have been traditionally oppressed, we might do harm if we do not become aware of those ways in which we have biases that hurt people of marginalized spaces. Thank you, Dr. Wang. Juliet. Yes, gosh, that was such a great answer. And I'm so glad you mentioned psychological safety because depending on where people are, I will cop to being one of the ones that when I went to therapy initially and I needed to pick a provider, I wanted African-American, female, Christian. Those were my three things that I wanted. I actually got that. <laughs> so I actually was was lucky enough to get get all of that and the healthcare system that I was participating in at the time. There's a couple of ways of looking at it. And so what Dr. Wang said about Asian Americans who don't necessarily want to have a therapist or have a provider from their same cultural experience, that's the same for, for Black folks too. It's like, we know that we have all these things to deal with in this culture. And that is not one of the things that we want to talk about necessarily. So we don't necessarily always want that close cultural experience with the provider. We are going there for a particular thing and we don't want to have to deal with that other level of stuff that we walk in the door with. That being said, we cannot get away from talking about systemic 
racism, the systemic and cultural impact on all of our systems, whether we're talking healthcare, education, justice, whatever system that you're talking about, there is this same, these same outcomes. This is backed up by research that these same outcomes for people, for BIPOC folks, and it's insidious, this implicit bias that we are not even aware of. It's unconscious stuff, unconscious reactions to people who may be different from you. And we cannot always depend upon professionals, particularly in our field, we're talking about therapists, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, medical providers. We cannot depend on them to be consciously aware of their own bias. We cannot. And that's sad to say that we have to push and challenge and make sure that we're advocating for ourselves. And who does that well, especially if you're sick or you need care? How are you supposed to advocate for yourself when you're not feeling well or when you are in in need of that service or in need of that support? It's a big conversation. It's a bigger conversation than you have time for in this podcast. And so... I want to echo and say yes and amen to what Dr. Wang said. So I really appreciate you both saying that it's about psychological safety. So often these discussions get tabled as judgment. We're judging the provider, we're judging mm. the patient, we're judging the system, we're ju- and it's but it's really just about a, a patient and a provider and mostly it's it's about the patient. It's very individualized. So thanks for discussing it from that 30,000 foot view, because so often we just hear, oh, do this and you'll be fine. And that's not really the conversation that we need to be having. And I think that it does contribute to traumatic experiences for a lot of people because they believe that if they do that, they'll be fine. But their unique circumstances are outside of what the person was talking about when they said, do this and we'll be fine. And It just wasn't covered. So you're right, Juliet. It's such a much bigger conversation than probably any podcast can cover. Maybe a podcast series, maybe sponsored by... No, I'm just kidding. The... Juliet, I want to stick with you for a moment and ask you a question. How do you personally believe that the climate of racial injustice in the U.S. has impacted your community's ability to receive an accurate and timely diagnosis? And just to make it a little more difficult on you, both historically and in recent years. Timely and what was the other one? Accurate and timely. Accurate and timely. Gosh, Gabe. Timely. I will say that African-Americans, Black people, there's a reluctance to seek care. There's a reluctance to put yourself in the position where you need to seek care with people who you may have distrust of, where you may not. You're just going with that mistrust. You don't know what you're going to get when you walk in the door. And there's all sorts of underlying, the term these days is, is implicit bias. And I'm, I need to say that I'm gratified that so many people are aware of this and are, so many people are trying to educate themselves and trying to understand that 
some of their attitudes, belief systems are impacted, some of their actions even are impacted by unconscious biases. I'm grateful that this is in our milieu of culture right now, but that does not address what has come before. And so I've heard you use this example, Gabe, about going to McDonald's. And so you go to McDonald's and you you get treated badly or they get your, your order wrong. You don't stop going to McDonald's ever. You just stop going to that one. Well, if it impacts the culture and there are stories that get passed down in families and generation after generation, yeah, you might stop going to the doctor because you just, <laughs> you remember this story, this story that happened, happened to your mother, happened to your brother, happened to your grandmother, happened to someone that you care about. You may delay going to seek care because of historical cultural stories that have been passed down through your family. And, you know, gosh, you get there and then you have your own personal experience that confirms what you've been told. It puts up all of these barriers and it just gets in the way of people getting timely care because they don't feel safe. And that's what it boils down to. Do they feel safe? enough to go and put their body, literally put their body in the care of someone that might be of a different culture. So, yeah. Juliet, I always like it when people use my own examples. It lets me know that people are listening, but you're absolutely right. If you get bad service at one McDonald's, you may stop going to that McDonald's, but still go to the others. But if you hear too many stories or you get service at multiple bad McDonald's, then after a while, you just stop going to McDonald's. You, you just go to other places. But here's the thing that always happens. Some McDonald's somewhere will say, well, but not us not our McDonald's, not our franchise. We're the good McDonald's. But of course, in, in the context of this analogy, you're just like, look, I don't want to risk it. And the odds are really low, right? It's a hamburger, it's fries, it, it's a drink. But I'm feeling like in your example, you're saying, well, I'm not going to the doctor. Well, the odds are very mm -hmm. high now, right? You're yes. not getting needed medical care. That's just not needed medical care. But to keep it on mental health just for a moment, and actually, I, I kind of like to give this question to Dr. Wang. We already have a group of people, the Americans in general don't honor mental health the way that we should. And now, of course, we're, we're talking about BIPOC communities, minority communities, and communities that are historically not as likely to seek out mental health care. Now, you're a, you're a provider. How do you get around that? I know this question is, is sort of very, very complex because I'm asking you to speak for, for all doctors. But for you, Dr. Wang, how do you get over that when you have people a culture, and I'm talking about the American culture, that already doesn't pay too much attention to mental health. And then we have subcultures within that that are also ignoring medical care and medical health because of generational trauma. What's your approach to getting those people the care that we understand that they do need, but that you also understand why they're hesitant to receive? Mm. This is, again, such a complex topic, but... 
I think, right, when we think about the stigma and shame associated with mental health that causes people to avoid seeking care or not even discuss it, right, I think part of the danger surrounding mental health is the silence that is around it within our communities, outside of our communities. It is the sense that there is something wrong with me. And if I share this, then I will be judged or criticized. And that I, and this is, I think, common across a lot of BIPOC communities, that when I admit my vulnerability and struggle, it actually brings shame to not just me, but my parents, my community, right? And so I think a lot of cultures, we are very integrated into the communities that we live in. And so we almost take a personal responsibility to uphold that reputation, that sense of everything is all right. And so it drives people into silence and not wanting to admit, hey, I'm struggling with depression or I'm having PTSD symptoms and it's affecting my day to day, but I'm able to kind of keep it hidden. And so I think one approach I take as a provider is you know, as a provider, especially in Asian culture, there's a very strong hierarchy. So if you have letters behind your name or if you've gone to school and you're an expert, quote unquote, in something, that hierarchy then creates a lot of power differential. And so I work very hard, even in my practice, to try to reduce that power differential, especially with people with marginalized identities, because they already feel intimidated. They already feel perhaps anxious, mistrustful, unsafe. I am trying, even in the first consultation, the free you know, 15-minute phone consult, I try to abdicate power as much as I can. I say, what feels right for you? When would you like to start? Does this seem safe of a relationship that you even want to try? You are allowed to stop at any time. I use a lot of invitational language to help people get a sense that, you know, maybe she's somebody who would let me take the reins a little bit in my care. And I think that's really important for people who largely have felt unable to control their life in spaces that are dominated by the dominant culture. Dr. Wang, sticking with that and, and building on it just a little bit, what is the importance of using interpersonal, culturally centered orientations in practice, specifically when working with those minority patients? When we think about minority clients or historically oppressed clients, they are perceiving this world not as this safe, supportive environment. It can feel like every time I leave my house, I have to be on guard. I have to be wary. And so that interpersonal, culturally centered orientation is trying to say, hey, I'm trying to cross that bridge over to where my client is. And that might feel like a really scary, lonely, or overwhelming place. But I'm going to try my best to utilize that humanistic connection between us to see if I can build that bridge to you. And I will tell my clients early on, I'll say, you know, you may realize a couple of sessions in that we're not a good fit and that is completely okay. And I would invite you to share that with me so that we could work towards a solution together. 
be it referring you out or staying to work together. And I think that cultural element is a, I've had clients say, when you shared this, or when you said this, I felt like you just got it. And there's something really special and powerful about those moments that it transcends words, right? It transcends the cognitive. It becomes much more visceral and emotional and bodily connected. And I think that a lot of us, especially in this post-pandemic world, we feel very disconnected from each other. And so that cultural element of me being able to say, I get it. I've been a child of immigrants as well. And I understand that creates a layer of complexity for you. Help me understand more of what it was like for you. And I think that client orientation has to be the forefront, which I think Juliet also has mentioned as well, that leading with them and trusting that they are the expert, that is how we are able to cross that bridge together. Let them, let them drive. Let yeah. them drive. Can I speak to that too a little bit? So, yes, please. Um, in terms of that power differential, that is something that we are very conscious of at the Peer Center, the, the agency that I run. People walk in the door. By the way, we're, we're drop-in. We're drop-in center. All of the staff at our agency are people with lived experience of mental health, addiction, or trauma. And so people walk in the door and our job is to make them comfortable. And so, and yes, we have tons of things that we have to do in order to provide services for them. All of our services are free of charge, but there's, you know, nothing's free. So there's stuff that we have to do. There's paperwork, there's all the stuff, all the things that we have to do. But our first job, is to connect, is to connect with that person coming in the door. They've never met us before. They don't know us. They know we've got recovery on the door. They walk in the door. Our first job is to create comfort, create that psychological and physical safety, introducing ourselves, showing people around, giving them a cup of coffee, giving them a snack, just making them feel comfortable by the way, saying these words right up front, all of us here are people with lived experience. If it was me that was greeting someone at the door and I happen to be, sometimes that happens that I have to be on the floor for something and I have to be the first person. And so, hi, I'm Juliet. And this is a, just a tiny bit of my story, some of my lived experience. It's creating that peer-to-peer environment so they absolutely know that it's not strange here. We are them. They are us. And letting them drive in terms of getting a little support that day, because there's a, there's a menu of things that people can choose to do when they're in our centers. They can get a little support. They can get a lot of support. They can get support with us. They can get support in other ways and participate in some of the other things that do not necessarily involve one of the staff but it's about letting them drive. It's letting them know that they're still in control here. It's not jail, it's support. You're welcome here. These are the community rules about speaking respectfully and that kind of thing. But beyond that, we let them drive and we let them know that they're in control here. They have some measure of control in this new and strange environment with these people that they've never met. 
Thank you so much, Juliet. Before I ask this next question, I want to remind our listeners that the Peer Center supports everybody, all races, cultures, genders, walks of life, sexual orientation. Everybody is welcome at the Peer Center. In fact, I think that's one of your big signs that you have right in the right yep. in the lobby, right? Everyone Ooh. is welcome. The reason that I wanted to point that out is because I, I do have a question about the number of minority clients that you have seen over the years. And I don't want anybody to get the idea that the Peer Center only serves minority clients. I point this out because you've been the executive director for many, many years, and you've seen thousands of people over the years who are seeking mental health care. And I say that because you are not herding them in. They are seeking it out. They are walking in of their own free will, and they are trying to find these services. What have you seen? Have you heard from them, seen from them, observed on your own that systemic racial bias has impacted their ability to seek mental health care, that that the misunderstanding of trauma and the delivery of care to minority communities has been impacted by this misunderstanding? And finally, is it changing? Is it getting better? Gosh, is it getting better? I guess you'd have to, you'd have to, let's start at the end. Is it getting better? I think that's hard to answer, particularly when we're on the heels, hopefully we're on the heels of the pandemic. We've had a tough two plus years with the pandemic. The systems are still, all the systems, healthcare and mental health care across the board, I think. We're all in COVID recovery, as it were. I don't know that it's getting, I think that collectively, the humans that we serve, that we want to serve, I think there are more of us in need of that service, in need of that support based on the last two plus years of upheaval, including COVID. In terms of what I've seen, so based on our data, Gabe, and thank you for saying that we serve we serve everybody. We absolutely do. And, and no, we're absolutely not seeking out. We Well, you know, we market and we do social media. We're trying to encourage people to come. Forced recovery is, is never a good tool. It just doesn't work. It has to be a, a willing step that folks want to take. But over the years, and yes, I've been there lots of years. Thank you, Gabe. We've seen our data shows that about half literally about half of the people that we see are African-American, other people of color. And so we get everybody. The fact that we're getting half says something about that, that people are coming to us. We are not a medical provider. Yes, we provide support, but we do not consider ourselves a medical provider. Recovery is not a medical process. It's a life management intervention opportunity, as it were. About half the people that come through the door are African-American or other people of color. We see a slight majority of men, which is a special phenomenon for us, which says a lot about what I think is the lack of services that are targeting men. And again, we're not targeting men. People come to us of their own accord and we see, we consistently historically see an overrepresentation of men in our centers. I'm not asking people, are you experiencing bias and racism and other isms? And why aren't you going? I don't, we don't ask those questions. 
but it is curious to us. And it's also curious to one of our primary funders who occasionally they will spit out data to us when they've, you know, collected and aggregated and done all the things and they'll spit out these numbers to us. And they literally have asked us the question, why is it that of all the providers that we fund that you're serving an overabundance of men? It's like, we don't know. We don't know the answer to that question. We are here, they come, we provide support. And not only do they come, but they come and do not go to other services. They're getting their only support with us. Sometimes you go to a go to a chiropractor or sometimes you go to this place for that or this place for the other thing. They only come to us for their support, which for us means that we have to evolve, <laughs> evolve our services and our support to meet whatever the needs are with that individual, with linkages and referrals and all, all that sort of thing. We're not doing anything special, I think, but we apparently we are doing something unique. I'm just saying we're not special, but we're all are unique. I think I just contradicted myself, but whatever. So the people come to us, they stay with us, they trust us. They trust us to treat them well and to meet them where they are. And I really can't even speak to anything else about that. This is what we do. We do it every day. I guess maybe we have a reputation for being that and doing that with people. I think it goes back to whenever I'm talking to anybody, talking to you or talking to to other entities about the peer center is that going back to that term, that psychological safety and that physical safety, it's actually in our mission statement that it's a safe place and always, always, always pushing out the story of our personal lived experience and collectively all of our lived experiences. I think I said on an interview the other day, there's not a lived experience we don't have represented on staff. There's not a life experience in terms of mental illness or addiction, including substance use or trauma. Go down the list of, of traumatic experiences and there it, it is represented by someone on staff. So we're, we're a veritable encyclopedia of, of life experiences in, with our staff. Nothing surprises us. We just accept people. And word gets around. We'd like it to get around more. Thank you. Thank you so much, Juliet. Dr. Wang, what types of barriers exist within the Asian American community in terms of seeking and obtaining mental health care? What types of barriers exist within this community in practicing emotional self-care? I think the barriers, I think there was a recent statistic, not recent, 2010, I think was when it, the study came out, but you know, Asian Americans are three times less likely to seek mental health support compared to their white counterparts. So there is something there that exists. Of course, there's the stigma. Of course, there's the element of individual or collective shame associated with it. But I also think that there's not a lot of education. You know, when we think about even my parents' generation, there wasn't a lot of discussion about mental health. There wasn't social media. There wasn't even the internet for them to learn about the resources available to them. 
And so I think there's a lack of education and also a miseducation, right? A lot of times mental health is relegated to people who are quote unquote crazy, right? And, and therefore, why would I need to see somebody? I'm not crazy, right? And so there are these kind of the misconceptions about what mental well-being is versus mental illness versus this idea of mental fitness. We actually, even if you're not struggling, could be and probably should be working on our mental health maintenance and prevention, right? Absolutely. And and so I think that even helping to normalize, and I think, Juliet, you alluded to that, is this lived experience that we all, in many ways, are carrying mental health. It's just an individual experience with mental health. And so the more we can normalize that as a conscious part of how we take care of ourselves, I think that can help the Asian American community move forward in this space. And I do believe the younger generation is kind of saying, we're releasing from all of that kind of misinformation. We actually believe mental health is something we have to prioritize because pandemic, anti-Asian hate, there has been so many things, right, with all of the political climate there is so much that weighs on our minds these days. And so I think that narrative is changing. However, I think that still there are not always providers who can perhaps meet the needs of Asian American clients. You know, I think as a psychologist, there's probably, I think it's 4% of psychologists are Asian American. I think that we're just a, a population that isn't necessarily encouraged to go into mental health as a profession because it's been so stigmatized in our community. So we're kind of playing catch up in terms of the demand for mental health care that is culturally reverent and the supply of providers who can meet that need. And I think even when we think about access, right? If you are a high school student, you want to pursue therapy, but your parents don't believe in mental health, how does that child seek care then, right? And so there are these different barriers and we have to educate that younger generation, you know, about resources that are available to them, even if your parents do not support you seeking care. And that's sometimes a big part of the battle is helping our young folks learn how to communicate that need and deal with the barriers that are potentially their own parents. I think there's a long way to go, but I'm also really hopeful. There's a next generation of Asian American mental health professionals that are entering the field, which makes me super excited. And I think a lot of providers are starting to learn more about how to serve the Asian community more effectively, irrespective of if they identify as Asian American. Thank you so much, Dr. Wang. As we're nearing the end of the show, I wanted to know if either one of you have any online resources. Can you recommend any free educational and culturally relevant resources around PTS and trauma that our listeners can access online? Wow. So there are actually tons of information that a lot of the national organizations put out. I know NAMI National has a ton of of information, fact sheets, Mental Health America, fact sheets, lots of information that is at people's fingertips. And it's not hard to find. It's just being willing to ask Mr. or Ms. Google the question. It's it's not hard to find. In terms of wellness, I'm, I'm so glad Dr. Wang brought that up in terms of normalizing wellness. It is in the conversation 
and I hesitate to put it this way, but if there was ever the upside of the last three years of all of the upheaval that we have had collectively as a society, the upside is that people are willing to talk about how sad they are or how angry they are or how anxious they are. They're willing to talk about it and they're willing to go out and seek information, maybe not in person because, you know, still trying to weigh, weigh that safety issue, but they're willing to seek out the information everywhere you look. There's on all the socials, everywhere you look, there is someone or some entity offering some type of support. People could literally do therapy on Instagram if they follow all those psychologists and psychiatrists that have pages because it's out there and easy to access. You know, I'm plugging Instagram right now. That's terrible. <laughs> so bad. But I... Yeah, Instagram needs you, Juliet. They need apparently, you. <laughs> apparently. But I know I follow... Personally, I follow about five psychologists that have pages and they're, the information and the things that they share so heartfelt and about normalizing, even talking about it, it's okay to not be okay. I see that everywhere. Now, maybe it's because the algorithm is tracking me, but whatever. <laughs> I see it everywhere. It's okay to not be okay. Nobody is saying that you're sick. No one's saying that you're weak. It's just okay to acknowledge that you're human. And there's a lot of crap going on in our world right now. And of course you're impacted. And why wouldn't you be? That was the upside, by the way, if you didn't know where I was going with that. So that it's out there, that this conversation is being more normalized. Thank you, Julia. Dr. Wang, I have the exact same question for you, but I also know that you have a very popular Instagram page and I, I want to <laughs> make sure that that you plug that because it's it's how we found you. It's how many people have found you and it's dedicated to the Asian community. So I don't want you to think that you're seamlessly self-promoting. We want you to. <laughs> um, before you answer that question, can you please give everybody your Instagram page? Sure. It's called Asians for Mental Health or at Asians for Mental Health. I have an Instagram account and then it's tied to a Facebook account as well. Yeah, I would say, I think the silver lining, because I have a very love-hate relationship with social media, but the silver lining is that that is one space where mental health is very much being normalized as part of the day-to-day -day conversation. And what is great is that over the last several years, if not many, many more, there are organizations that are dedicated to serving certain populations, you know? And so I know that the Asian Mental Health Collective, which is a 503C nonprofit, they have a Lotus Therapy Fund where individuals can apply and get a certain number of sessions compensated free of charge. I know the Loveland Foundation has something similar yes. for African-American women and girls. On top of that, there are several directories that are focused on certain populations. So for us, AsiansForMentalHealth.com, we do have a therapist directory for self-identified Asian American therapists here in the United States. So does Asian Mental Health Collective. Therapy for Black Girls, I think, has a directory as well. So there are several kind of directory structures where all of the providers identify in a certain way that might help kind of ease or remove one barrier to entry of trying to find a therapist that might resonate with you. And I think that, you know, 
as much as the mental health space is being discussed on social media, nothing replaces the importance of face-to-face interaction with a trained provider. So all of us that have social media accounts will have a disclaimer. Social media is not therapy, right? And so I think that as much as you can see these accounts as almost connection points or knowledge points, you might get nuggets of information. Nothing really replaces the intimate therapeutic relationship that exists when you work with a provider consistently. And I think that's the goal of a lot of these accounts is to say, hey, there's a wealth of information and you can practice a lot of these skills within a therapy context if you have access to it. And I think that's one of the top barriers is access, either financial time, resource, or therapeutic match. And then specifically, I think to trauma, there are several national networks that focus on trauma, either within PTSD or looking at childhood trauma, things like that, that I think are great places to start. They have a lot of information, sometimes even putting language or naming how you're feeling is the first step. So that might be a good starting point for people. Honestly, if you hop onto these social media accounts and find hashtags, mental health, knowledge, or awareness, it gives you a lot of options and you can see what resonates. So yeah, I would say start in those spaces, the national organizations like Juliet mentioned, or just hopping onto social media and seeing which providers really resonate with you. Dr. Wang, Juliet, thank you both so very much for being here. And I want to echo what both of you said about just getting out there and looking around, finding what's right for you, leaving the rest. I believe Juliet said it's like asking Mr. or Mrs. Google and getting that information. But I also echo what Dr. Wang said. Yeah, it's one small piece, right? Don't make it everything, just make it a piece. You can have a little bit of everything. You don't have to lock yourself into one thing. Now, this is not an online resource, but if you do find yourself in central Ohio, the Peer Center is a drop-in center literally for anybody above the age of 18. So just walk on in and say hi. If you're in the right location, Juliet may be there to greet you. And you can say hello to her yourself. Juliet, I understand that you also have social media. What is the Peer Center social media? The Peer Center at the Peer Center. So that's both Facebook and Instagram, correct? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. If you find yourself on that LinkedIn thing, we're there too. <laughs> so, yep. Yep. The Peer Center is everywhere you want to be. Everywhere. Once again, thank you both so much for being open, honest, and vulnerable. The conversation was appreciated and very needed. Thank you so thank much. You. Thanks for listening to Voices of Nexus. Don't forget to check us out at www.nexusmentalhealth.com. That's www.nexusmentalhealth.com. Or look us up on Facebook. <laughs>